Good morning, Cornerstone. As Joyce said, I'm Pastor Bill. And um, I realize I've been gone for a couple weeks, so, um, so there are some of you who have showed up or, or just we've never met. So after the service, I'm going to go up these stairs and turn to the right under the big clock there. If you've never said hi to me, if we've never met, just come and say hi and introduce yourself, and, um, and we'll get, get at least a couple sentences to get to know each other a little bit. So Pastor Danny started a three-sermon series last week talking about our money. So think about money for a moment. What images, feelings, and ideas come to you when you think about money? Marriage Partnership Magazine a few years ago wrote that that single word is more freighted with more power, more emotion, more symbolism, and more myth than almost any other word in the English language. They say only love and possibly sex carry the same wallop. Money evokes a jumble of responses, envy, joy, fear, guilt, lust, hope, and scorn, just to name a few. And marriage counselors have been telling us for a number of years now that um, money actually has overtaken sex as the leading, the leading um, symptom or cause of marital difficulty. More of our marriages argue about money than they argue about sex. So one person, Riley, said, if Freud were alive today, he wouldn't be talking about sex, he'd be talking about money. And we all have our personal money stories, don't we? We all have this range of emotions and thoughts and feelings and ideas about money that are often very deeply woven into our, our story of growing up in our family of origin. Whether money was scarce when we were growing up or whether it was plentiful, um, there are all these feelings and ideas that, that still come out of us even though we've left our family of origin, and they still shape how we think and feel about money. This last week I went to the Topsfield County Fair because I love demolition derbies. Now, if you don't know what a demolition derby is, I grew up in the Midwest and we had county fairs once a year, and our family always went to the fair on demolition derby night. What it is is a bunch of slightly crazy people get beat up cars and they drive them into a ring and then they smash into each other till only one of them is still running. And so you have multiple heats, you know, you have six or eight or ten cars in this, this area with concrete barriers around it. And the, the, the idea is that you use the back end of your car as a battering ram to try to blow the radiator in all the other cars. Because when the radiator blows, the car can't keep running. And when they blow, all kinds of smoke and steam goes up. Sometimes the engine catch on fire, but that's all just kind of part of the fun. So I'm... Um, so I went to the Topsfield Fair, and oh, I think I, there we go. This is a little bit of what it looked like. And um, Marla hates these things, because they're way too violent, way too, I mean, you hear all the crunching and everything else. Um, but, um, but she was um, not back to Boston yet, so I took off to the fair. <laughs> now, as kids, we went to the fair with my dad, so that we could do the demolition derby. And we had a rule when we were growing up about going to the fair. You never went to the fair hungry. Because fair food is stupid expensive. It wasn't that it was lousy food. It wasn't even that we couldn't afford it. My parents were both school teachers. 
It was just the food was too expensive. So I broke the rule on Monday night when I went to the fair. I forgot to eat, so I got there hungry. You know what I did, thinking of our money stories? I wandered around the food booths for like 20, 30 minutes to find the cheapest food that I could find so I wouldn't feel guilty about spending money on, fair, on food at the fair. And so I got a lousy hot dog, really lousy french fries, and I splurged and got a bottle of Coke, and when I paid them the $12, it was only $12, it's silly, when you think about my financial situation, it shouldn't affect me at all. I'm giving them the $12 and I'm feeling guilty about spending $12 for fair food. Without knowing it, unconsciously, we make decisions about money today that are lots of times, they're actually a reflection of our parents' money stories, and lots of our parents' money stories are reflections of our grandparents' money stories. So we've got three generations of feelings and thoughts about money that just sort of kind of gather around, and without knowing it, they shape us even today. And then, Jesus shows up at some point in our lives, and he talks about money. And Jesus doesn't talk just a little bit about money. Jesus talks a lot about money. 16 of his, 38, of his major 38 parables, 16 of them are about money, most of them showing how money is an indication of a person's spiritual condition. One of every 10 verses in the four Gospels deals with the subject of money. And um, 288 verses in the Gospels directly talking about money. And then when you back up and look at the scriptures as a whole, there are around 500 verses in the entire Bible about prayer. There were fewer than 500 about faith. There are, catch this, over 2,000 verses in the Bible about money and possessions. What's going on with that? We know it's silly to think that God somehow needs or wants our money. That's just absurd. So what's going on in the Bible and what's going on with Jesus that they talk so much about money? Erwin Lutzer, who pastored Moody Church in Chicago, wrote that money is emphasized in Scripture simply because our temptation to love it is inexplicably powerful. Then Oswald Sanders, a pastor in the previous generation, he said, money is one of the acid tests of character. And a surprising amount of space is given to it in scripture because whether a person is rich or poor, observe their reaction to their possessions and you have a revealing index to their character. And so I had a financial advisor back in um, my last church when we were living in Ohio. And he, he constantly said, money is one of the most spiritual things in our lives because nothing reveals our hearts as much as our attitude towards money and possessions. Jesus knows the emotional, psychological, relational, and spiritual weight of our money stories. He wants us to bring them to him to be redeemed. Because he insistently, he constantly, time and time again says, the way you think about your money is a reflection of your heart and soul. So Jesus talks about money so much because he wants to transform our money stories. He wants to empower us to trust in God alone. So we use our finances for flourishing and the common good instead of putting our trust in our money and then using our finances for emotional protection and, um, and selfish 
ambition. If we ignore the priorities and principles that Jesus teaches about money, if we don't do the courageous work of bringing our money stories to Jesus to redeem them, we're doomed to live out generational money stories that very often don't reflect the grace of God, but they reflect the fears and the desires and the greed of generation after generation that look more like the world, the flesh, and the devil. So, first thing we got to realize when we think about money as Christians is that Jesus unapologetically and insistently invites us to bring all of our thoughts and feelings about money to the table of discipleship as his followers. So, my main assignment this morning in this series is to show how much Jesus wants to protect us from the deceitfulness of wealth. We know the Bible doesn't say it's wrong to be rich or to enjoy earthly wealth. It just it never goes there. But while it's not morally wrong to be rich, we should never forget that Jesus says that it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to come into the kingdom of God. And as Pastor Danny said last week, we should not miss that every one of us in this room right now, nearly every single one of us, lives like kings compared to how most of the world can ever dream of living. Not just the world today, but through history, we live like kings. One of, um, one of our cornerstone people said to me a number of years ago when we were talking about finances, he said, Bill, you have to remind us all the time. And I said, what? And he says, you have to remind us that we are the 1%. If we're not now, we will be the 1%. So let's not miss that when Jesus is talking to the rich and the wealthy, he is not talking to someone else. He's talking to us. In Mark 4:19, Jesus says in the parable of the sower, he says, the one who received the seed that fell among the thorns, catch this, is the person who hears the word, but the worries of this life, the deceitfulness of wealth, and the desires for other things come in and choke the word, making it unfruitful. Of all the people on the face of the earth, it's people like us who have to seriously look at the deceitfulness of wealth. So what are some of the lies of wealth? And here's some, I just made a list of five or six of them here, and I recognize them in my money story. First, if I have more money, I will be more happy. If I don't have what others have, I don't measure up. When it comes to money, Always compare up to those who are richer. Never compare down to those who are poor. And this lie keeps me feeling poor and dissatisfied instead of grateful and content. If I have more money, I will be safe and secure. We've heard that from our parents growing up so often that it's deeply embedded in our psyche and our soul as we think about money. And with this lie, if, it is that if we really do think that we'll be more secure and safer with money, then money becomes an idol that usurps God as the one who is our protector and our provider. The deceitfulness of wealth says that it doesn't matter if I withhold my tithes and offerings as a follower of Jesus. The lie is that the less I give away, the more I get to have. Deceitfulness of wealth sees greed in everybody else, but not in me. The deceitfulness of wealth, and, 
an entire, I mean, we have an entire materialistic, consumeristic society that says to us, spend more, get just the right brands, okay? Uniqlo is the 17th most expensive or most richest brand in fashion in the world today. So get Canada Goose, get Uniqlo, and go down there, get Zara, get whatever, just get, this culture says, get just the right brands. It's worth it. I've earned it. I deserve it. The deceitfulness of wealth makes money the center of my life rather than Jesus the center of my life. And it's so deceitful that I don't even know it's happened. It just slides through, and I'm worshiping an idol and not my God. Luke 12, 15, Jesus says, watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. A person's life does not consist in the abundance of their possessions. Because the truth is this, and you don't even have to be Christian to know it. The truth is money will not solve our problems. Money will not give us more security. Money will not give us peace or contentment or healing or wholeness. Money will not reduce our anxiety or our shame. Money will not make us more beautiful or more desirable. Isn't it strange? We have all these feelings about money, but money doesn't have any feelings for us. Money doesn't care about you and me in any way. Money is a deaf and dumb idol, just like the idols that are talked about in the Old Testament. And as I said, even worldly wisdom, apart from Christ, even worldly wisdom knows this. So the guy who, who gave the seed money to build the Ben Franklin Institute was actually Benjamin Franklin. And he's pretty much a pagan. Listen to what he says about money. It feels weird to quote, quote him because he's not I mean, he was Christianized, but he pretty sure he wasn't a Christian. He says, money never made a person happy, nor will it ever. There's nothing in its nature to produce happiness. The more a person has, the more they want. Instead of filling a vacuum, money makes a vacuum. If it satisfies one want one way, it doubles and triples another want another way. G.K. Chesterton was interesting. Um, kind of writer um, in the early 1900s, late 1800s. And somebody pointed out to G.K. Chesterton, a person who had just become incredibly wealthy. And Chesterton had a way with words. And here's what Chesterton said in response. He said, to be clever enough to get all that money, one must be stupid enough to want it. An old German, a Jewish proverb says, money has not yet made Money has never yet made a person rich. And I couldn't find who wrote this, but I um, came across this. Money will buy a bed, but not sleep. Books, but not brains. Food, but not an appetite. A house, but not a home. Medicine, but not health. Amusement, but not happiness. Finery, but not beauty. A crucifix, but not a savior. And then Tertullian, who wrote in the third century, because this is not just a problem for our generation, right? Tertullian wrote this. He said, nothing that is God's is obtainable by money. Jesus wants to rescue us from the deceitfulness 
of wealth. He wants to redeem our, our money stories to reflect the generosity of God, not the lies that the culture tells us about money. And we're going to concentrate on this next week. Um, David Kim's going to bring the message. Um, but it's ironic, isn't it? The way to financial freedom is not by making more and saving more and keeping more. The way to true financial freedom is by giving more. And like I said, we'll talk about it next week. So this epitaph that I love in a, a cemetery in Scotland says this on the gravestone. What I spent, I had. It's gone. What I kept, I've lost. It's gone. What I gave, I have. Which is Jesus saying, store up treasures in heaven, not treasures on earth. So I want to just quickly take a brief look with you at an encounter Jesus had in Luke 19. Last week, Pastor Danny, um, with him, we saw Lazarus at the gate of heaven with Abraham, and then the rich man was in Hades, suffering in torment. So we saw, uh, we saw Lazarus at the gate. Today, I want to see Zacchaeus at the table with Jesus, because in this encounter with Jesus, Zacchaeus redeems his money story. So we read it in Luke chapter 19, verses 1 through 10. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small in stature. This is where we pick on short people, right? He was small in stature. So he ran on ahead, and he, wasn't, he was smart though. He ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, to see Jesus, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. They All the people, the religious people grumbled. He's gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Sometime, some kind of conversation went on, right? Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I've defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. The, the standard restitution was you give back twice what you defrauded or took from someone. So he's doubling that. He says, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today, salvation has come to this house since he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. Lots going on in the passage. You can do your own research later. Suffice it to say that Zacchaeus had a money story where getting more was his idol. Absolutely. Even though it meant becoming a traitor to his own people as a tax collector for the oppressive Roman regime. And even though it meant cheating and stealing and swindling his family and fellow Jews. In Zacchaeus, we see proof positive that the love of money will incrementally lead us to unimagined betrayal of our values, of our people, and of our God. Growing up in Sunday school, I don't know whether you remember the song, Zacchaeus was a wee little man, a wee little man was he. And so the focus growing up in Sunday school was always Zacchaeus and the sycamore tree. But that's not the right focus for this story. The right focus is 
Zacchaeus at the table. We don't know what Jesus talked to Zacchaeus about, but we know that Zacchaeus transformed and had his entire money story redeemed because he got up and he said to the Lord, behold, the half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I've defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. Can there be any more clear picture of a redeemed money story? that protects us from the deceitfulness of wealth? And then listen to Jesus' shocking response to Zacchaeus' money story. Jesus says to him, salvation today, salvation has come to this house. Think about that. Think about that. Jesus can look at our money and know if we are saved. Jesus actually says how we handle our money is evidence that we are surely saved. Now, Zacchaeus didn't buy his way into heaven. We know from scripture that salvation is a free gift of God through, um, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Zacchaeus giving half his goods to the poor and paying fourfold restitution, it's not how he got saved, but it is incontrovertible proof that he has been saved. Redeeming his money story showed beyond a shadow of a doubt that salvation had come to Zacchaeus that day. Only someone who has received, has, has breathed in and, and received the glorious grace of God can turn around and learn the glorious grace of generous giving. If you've experienced the grace of God sufficiently, it will transform how you look at your money. So, what does your current money story reveal about you? We can be saved and not have redeemed our money story. But we can't be mature disciples of Jesus without a redeemed money story. If we are still thinking that somehow we can serve God and money, then we are not mature followers of Jesus. Because the only way we can be mature followers is that we bring all of our financial feelings and thoughts under the teaching and guidance of Jesus. So, do your finances show that you are saved? Or do your finances show that it's inconclusive? We can't tell yet. Some of our hearts, really truly, some of your hearts are exactly where God wants them to be right now. You are doing all you can to spend less, to give more. You are nurturing generosity in your life. And if that's you, God is incredibly proud of you for doing that kind of work. It is interesting, though, that it was only one conversation that Zacchaeus needed with Jesus to make the commitment to bring his money story under the authority of Jesus. But some of our hearts are still under the influence of the deceitfulness of money. They just are. And... Some of our hearts still think that we can kind of play around with serving God and money. We think that we can be mature disciples without redeeming our money stories. So let me just close with a couple of other parts of my own money story when I was growing up. So when I was 16, I got my first full-time job that I worked all the way through college. And when I got my first paycheck, I knew that I couldn't trust my parents um, for guidance on finances. That was, that was really, really clear in my um, 
household growing up. So I got my first paycheck, and I went to a credit union to open up my first bank account. And while I was there saying, hey, I want to open it, I said, could I maybe talk to somebody about learning how to budget my money? And, um, and I was ushered into, I kid you not, I'm a 16-year-old punk kid, right? And I'm ushered into the president's office of the DuPage School's credit union. And I said, um, I'd like to learn something about budgeting. Asked me a couple questions, found out I was a freshman at Wheaton College. And he said, come on over here. And he went over to the table, pulled out a piece of paper. And he said, the first thing that you do is you figure out your tithes and offerings. And since he knew I was at Wheaton College, he says, as a Christian, that always comes first for the rest of your life. So he put top of the page, a budget, tithes and offerings. And then he told me, the baseline for your tithe is 10%. But if you're really a Christian who wants to make the world a better place, you should never give away less than 15% of your salary for the rest of your life. Wait, what? <laughs> I wasn't expecting this whole... And, and so at the top of the page, he wrote tithes and offerings. And then beneath that, he wrote rent and utilities and food and car and all that kind of stuff. For years and years, I kept that piece of paper in the top drawer of my desk because I tried to give at least 15% of my income away from my very first paycheck, um, first full-time paycheck. Well, then we got to seminary and, um, you know, finished college, went to grad school, worked a year or so, um, get to seminary, and money was really, really tight for Marla and I in seminary. And so one Christmas, we were home with visiting Marla's family, and I mentioned to Marla's grandpa Gowerke, who was the pastor who actually officiated our wedding ceremony, I mentioned to Pastor Gowerke, this old German, you know, pastor of like five or, I mean, he must have been 180 by the time I was talking to him. And so I said, I said, grandpa, money's really tight in seminary, can you pray for us? Because we knew he always prayed for us. And the first question he asked me is, are you tithing? I said, oh, no, Grandpa, we really don't have the money right now to tithe. And I kind of expected a lecture because he was pretty rigid on some of those things. But what I got in response was way more powerful than a lecture. I kid you not. His face got sad and a tear started to come out down his face. And I said, Grandpa, what's wrong? And he said, he said, it just breaks my heart that you and Marla can't receive the full goodness of God because you're robbing God of what is due to him. Now, if he'd given me a lecture or some kind of legalism, I could have argued with him in my head. But I couldn't argue with his passion for Marla and I to receive the fullness of the blessings of God. And he said, Bill, if you rob God, God cannot bless you fully. What that means is that for most of the last 50 years, I'm 66 years old, all right? So I got half a century where Marla and I have given away at least 15% of our income for half a century. It doesn't make us heroes. It doesn't, I mean, there's, I promise you, there are plenty of areas where we need to grow a lot. But it does mean that I'm confident that Jesus can look at our family finances and say salvation has come to this house. That's what I want for each of you. I want you to have that confidence that Jesus would look at your finances for the next 50, 75, I don't care if you live 100 years, for the rest of your life, I want you to have the confidence that Jesus can look at your finances and say, surely salvation 
is here. There's so much more that Marla and I have learned about money over the years. I wish I had like three sermons to talk. But one of them that just I can't not say is we've learned over the last half a century we can never, ever, ever outgive God. We just can't. Doesn't matter how much we give to him of our hearts, of our resources, of our children, we never outgive God that he doesn't return and bless us beyond anything that we could ask or think. So, would you commit today to ask Jesus and then continually ask Jesus to help redeem your money story? If you do that because of this sermon, you will probably come and find me in heaven and thank me. Because I'm going to find Grandpa Gowerke and the president of the DuPage Schools Credit Union. When I get to heaven, I'm going to find them and say, thank you for guiding me so that I could receive more of the blessings of God. So would you commit your own money story to be redeemed by Jesus? And then secondly, would you encourage your friends and your family and your children? Because you are going to be shaping your children's money story in powerful ways. Would you commit to, to encourage your friends and family and children to let Jesus redeem their money story as well? Because the spiritual significance of our money far, far outweighs the financial significance of our money. So Paul, reflecting the words of Jesus, says this in 1 Timothy 6, and it's like he wrote it to Cornerstone Church. Paul writes and says, Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age, so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. Father, I pray for every single one of us here and everyone who, who may be listening in on our YouTube or may listen to the message sometime in the next few weeks. I pray that we would be able to live life that is truly life. Life that is abundant. Life that is overflowing with grace and goodness and joy and generosity. Would you let us have the gift of living life that is truly life because we have allowed Jesus to be the master of our money stories so that our money stories are not the master of us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.